You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What the doctor say? This is Dr. Kendra Outler, Dr. K with Uzima Health and Wellness, and I welcome to the platform Dr. Nayo A. Kawate. She is Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University, and I welcome you to the show. I've been so excited trying to get on your schedule. You're a very busy professor, and so I'm so excited since I discovered your work. It's very meaningful to me as a physician that is interested in health disparities. So I would like to welcome you to the show. And uh, Dr. Kawate, please tell us your official title and what you're up to. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I know we've been trying to schedule this for a while. So yeah, it's, it's great to be able to talk with you finally. My title, I'm associate professor. Um, as you mentioned, I'm at Rutgers University. I'm joint appointed between uh, the Department of Africana Studies and the Department of Human Ecology. And I study racial inequalities and African-American health I've been at Rutgers for 12 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, I was at Columbia School of Public Health. So I'm actually a psychologist by training. So I've made a shift over, over the course of my career from focusing on mental illness um, as a clinical psychologist to broadly uh, studying social determinants of African-American health. You said you're a primarily a psychologist. Where did you train as a psychologist? I did my graduate work at St. John's University in Queens in New York. Mm-hmm. And I was focusing on, I was, I was in the child and adolescent track. So I was training to treat child and adolescent patients oh. and their families. So basically what happened was we, you know, during grad school, during the clinical psych program, you do, you know, your standard coursework. You all, obviously you do the dissertation and stuff like that at the end. But as part of the training, uh, it includes clinical training because that's mm-hmm. what you're learning to do. So we did that both on site at the university's clinic. And then we would, we would have external placements. So we have externships and internships. And so I was doing my placements at large New York City hospitals, Mount Sinai. Um, right. And, uh, and then um, where else was I? Woodhull Hospital at the juncture of Best Eye and uh, Bushwick. And then I did my internship at St. Luke's Hospital. And so across all of those, the patient populations were either the children or their caregivers and extended family had a significant burden of chronic illness. And so it became very evident that there were a lot of things happening beyond the psychological issues that were bringing them in for treatment. And clinical psychology as a discipline is focused on the psyche. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not really looking at the broader social context in which people live to some extent, but not not in the ways in which I thought were necessary for what I was interested in, in trying to do. And so given the amount of chronic illness, I really started moving to trying to understand social position and health the inequalities that were very evident that were ingrained in the neighborhoods in in which the the patients lived. And so I began to try to understand how those Mm -hmm. contexts were putting people at risk of health risks, to use the Mm -hmm. language of fundamental causes of sociologists Bruce Link and Joe Phelan have talked about. So what puts people at risk of risks? Interesting. Yeah. And so from there, I moved, after I finished my doctorate, I moved on to doing, I did a postdoc in behavioral medicine, and then I ended up going to the, the School of Public Health at Columbia and, and began an interdisciplinary research program focused okay. on inequality and health. You know, so much as a physician, that's something that drives me. I have a master's in public health as well, looking at health education. And then when I went to medical school, I always would say, what else is putting this patient here just be, besides the, the physiology that we're talking about? You know, there's right. something else uh, going on. I would look at zip codes for gun violence and figure out where is this neighborhood and what else is going on in this neighborhood? And I think that what I've learned is that this, this interdisciplinary approach may be the best answer to solving some of these uh, longstanding chronic ills in all communities, but particularly the Black community. In the 80s, we called it the revolving door. What, you, what years were you studying your, in, in this clinical scenario? I finished my doctorate in 2002. Mm-hmm. So this was mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I did my postdoc right after that and then mm-hmm. started at Columbia 2004-2005 academic year. Yeah, so I, I wasn't in medical school in the 80s, but I, I was working as a medical records clerk at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. And again, we talked about this revolving door. And then, you know, Hillary Clinton started this conversation about how to, one of the ways that she proposed to solve that was talking about the health care reform at that time. 
And that was one of the issues that she wanted to solve. So this is a great area that I have found to be very uplifting to using my health and wellness. You have started some work in a conversation that is key in the social determinants of health. I mean, you've been doing this for over 10, 15 years, and then COVID happens, and all of a sudden on MSCBC, they're talking about all the social determinants of health, and you're like, hello, been knowing about them, been researching them. What are the social determinants of health? They're all of this, all of the, the aspects of our social lives that mm-hmm. affect whether we are likely to become ill, how well we're able to recover from it, or what kinds of means we have, you know, what, what's the likelihood we're going to regain a better uh, trajectory thereafter. Mm-hmm. So it's everything, it's where we live. And that comprises not just the housing, which mm-hmm. itself can be a risk factor or something that benefits our health. So, you know, what what quality housing do we have? Right. What kinds of environmental you know problems are there within that? Mm-hmm. But also in the neighborhood, what kinds of resources are there? Resources. You know, how much investment, public or private, is there in the neighborhood? What kind of schooling do we have access mm-hmm. to? What's policing like? Policing has been shown as a, a, a critical factor of health, absolutely. Education. Segregation, mm-hmm. David Williams and Chiquita Collins' uh, foundational paper in 2001 about racial uh, segregation as a fundamental cause of health, because segregation is the cornerstone. They, they really argue it's the cornerstone on which Black-white health disparities are built in this country, because segregation determines so many of the other things that affect our health. So social determinants means it's broader than individual health behaviors. It's broader mm-hmm. than our genetics. It's broader than you know things that are reducible to what's happening with one individual person, but really the social context in which they live. You know, I've been discussing this with medical students and my residents. You know, this is an initiative in the hospital to discuss this with our residents because they've been so, you know, focused on disease entities without thinking about the social determinants of health. And so one list I had said race, you know, as I had the the residents kind of call it out, and they never want to say racism and they never want to say race. I found that most of them are are white uh, residents they wanted to exclude that as if it was a, they didn't, were afraid to say that. So I had to show them papers that indeed race can be a social determinant of health and racism, you know, and I think that in, in explaining to them why, they was like, why? I mean, because person's Black, we shouldn't treat them differently, but it may not be you. It's like you said, within the context that the person comes from, and by and large, in some of your work, you're showing that Black communities have transportation and food access shortages to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, and by and large, Black communities live in these areas. There's been this argument in some of our literature that just because a patient's Black doesn't mean that the disease is better or worse. And uh, we have long-standing studies that show this. There may be some differences in outcomes based purely on race. That's something that the medical community is grappling with, is the AMA is trying to say, don't put race on your H- your history and physical. That pains me because it's letting residents think that people are almost cans of soup. They don't come with a context, but they're, that is their suggestion to eliminating racism in medicine. I'm see, sure. the problem there, of course, is that just because you're not writing it down doesn't mean you don't see it and you're not attending to it. I mean, there's, a, there's as you said, you know, it's racism. It's not race. It's not the fact that I am classified as Black, apart from the fact of how American society treats people who are classified as Black. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly a wealth of literature that shows in, in the patient encounters with physicians, they're, they're, they're making, whether or not they're aware of it or not, but they've been shown to you know ha- mm-hmm. uh, harbor ideas about Black people being more resilient to pain and you know having different pain thresholds and this kind of mm-hmm. thing. So even if you're not writing it down, that's not going to eliminate um, biases that may still be operating. So it's a huge uh, conversation, but I think that this is where someone of your stature and your your ability to discuss segregation and the symbols of racism in our communities would be helpful to the medical community. And when we build out these conversations, we oftentimes don't consult someone like you who, who's, this is your world, this is what you're, you're talking about. So I, I love your book, The Street, and I know that you you were, um, that was a collaborative effort. Yeah, I was the uh, editor. Mm-hmm. What was the goal of that photo documentary? So that book came out of a conference um, we held at the Center for Race and Ethnicity at Rutgers in 2016. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was called the City is Health Policy uh, Conference funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The conference convened different scholars and researchers and uh, professionals mm-hmm from a variety of disciplines and uh, theoretical perspectives who could discuss how different aspects of the city affect health uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and try to think capaciously about that. So whether it be law enforcement, 
you transportation. know, environment, transportation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that, so we had that conference and then the book sort of came out of that. It was, so it, it wasn't, you know, a, a straight ahead kind of conference volume that like you might just see papers that were written for a conference, mm-hmm. but sort of riffing on that, I, I had some folks who participated in the conference and then invited also some additional um, contributors to write from their different perspectives about mm-hmm. inequality. Mm-hmm. Well, not necessarily writing directly about health, but thinking about the kinds of inequalities. Yes. I love it. It's, it's a powerful book. It's a must Thank read. Mm-hmm. So what we did was I had folks write in response to photos um, photographs by Camilo Vergara. Uh, I don't know if you know his work apart from the photos you saw in this book, but he's a really excellent uh, documentary uh, photographer who um, he won a MacArthur many years ago. And what he does is he photographs different aspect, uh, neighborhoods and cities over time. Oh, so wow. he'll return to, so he's done a lot of work in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, okay. many places, LA, but he'll go to a location, photograph it over time, years and years, and oh. keep coming back to the same spot. And you can see oh. how, it, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So... I was able to collaborate with him and and get access to some of his photographs. And then the contributors wrote mm-hmm. sort of w- how that image for them represented some aspect of inequality in America. Right, right. So that we could think uh, think about how the different ways in which that operated. So it was a neat project. It was it was it fun. But, you know, got a lot of interesting perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of your other work. Now, I was attracted to your work, Fried, uh, uh, fried Apples. Yes. That, I mean, that was so powerful to me. And I wrote a, a book, uh, I mean, an essay about it in my Uzima Health and Wellness called Fishbowl Girl, because I wanted to talk about obesity, but not from the, you know, physiological and people need to lose weight and exercise. But what was contributing to that in Black communities? Because, you know, and, you know, COVID was saying obesity contributed to death. So I said, well, what about, I said, fast foods in Black communities? And all this research came up and you're mm-hmm. ping, ping, ping. And I thought, Okay, something I had never read this perspective that this that fast foods in our communities have been strategic and a way to basically undermine health in our communities. Never thought about that. My family owned fish uh, fishboat restaurants. That's why I call it Fishboat Girl. That's what's the name. And we were on Martin Luther King in our neighborhood, which is in southeast Houston. And when my parents lost their jobs in the oil businesses, they opened up we opened up restaurants. I mean, it was Harlem Barbecue with Tim Chan fried chicken. Boudin stands up and down MLK. And if you go there now, it's really not the site of gentrification. You know, we talk about third ward, fourth ward near the uh, freeway, but South Park has been forgotten, you know, that MLK strip. And why did that happen? So I was very attracted to your work. And so I started digging some more and I found this one, Burgers and Blackface. <laughs> and so I said, who is this professor that keeps <laughs> talking about racism and food and makes me not want to eat a burger again <laughs> <laughs> or fried chicken? But the uh, chicken and fried apples, that, that was one of your earlier research topics. So take me through your odyssey with this food and racism. Yeah, well, it's quite a while. So that paper is what? That's like 2008. Yeah, at that time... Actually, it was funny. The, 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 the way that um, that paper came out was I was trying to submit a grant to the NIH, uh, an RO3, which is a small grant mechanism. I was proposing to, to do quantitative mm-hmm. analyses of fast food in, the, in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I ended up not getting the grant, but we did the analyses. We were able to do the analyses anyway. That became a different paper. But in any case, so while I was writing the grant proposal in the, you know, sort of the introduction part of the, of the NIH grant, it's called the background and significance. And I was writing all of this stuff around, you know, why I thought fast food, you know, was likely to proliferate in black neighborhoods. And, and so therefore this is why we need to test it empirically. And, and I was handing it to my mentor, uh, Elon Meyer, and, you know, he was reading drafts for me and he kept coming back and saying, mm-hmm. you know, you need to cut this back and give more room to the methods. I would send him another draft. He'd be like, great, but cut this back. Mm-hmm. I would send him another draft. Finally, he was like, okay, clearly you have something to say. <laughs> write a paper, but that's not for the grant. I'm like, all right. So that's what I did. And so it became that paper. And so that, you know, in that paper, I was trying to think about why fast food was just, for, you know, from my own walking around in New York at, you know, at the time and then having grown up in Chicago. But, you know, you could see that fast food was mm-hmm. um, quite dense in Black neighborhoods. And so... In the paper, I was thinking about why that might be even so that the and the argument was even in the absence of purposeful targeting, which I believe there was, that fast food was still likely to proliferate because of the downstream effects of segregation. So again, if we harken back to Williams and Collins' paper about segregation as a fundamental cause, 
segregation um, does a number of things. Like it creates a sort of centralized, well, first of all, you know, black people are spatially, you know, located in discrete parts of the city. Mm -hmm. So again, obviously, if you want to target people, then, you, you know, you can just pinpoint those areas. But also segregation creates a labor market that doesn't exist elsewhere so that if you have more, the unemployment rates are higher in black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have a, you have a uh, better base for which you, where you can find new workers for the right. restaurants. The rent is going to be cheaper because of racism, racism mm -hmm. devalues land and, you know, real estate values in black neighborhoods. So that means the rent is going to be cheaper and so on. So I was just arguing that there are a number of reasons why fast food would be likely to proliferate apart from, from mm -hmm. the industry saying, oh, we want to target black people and, and, you know, for these restaurants. So that, that was my first uh, work on that. And then, like I say, we ended up, even though we didn't get the grant with some, uh, some colleagues, we were able to complete the quantitative analyses anyway. Mm -hmm. And then what we found, so we looked at the distribution of fast food across the five boroughs in New York City. And what we found was that there were more of them in black neighborhoods. So it was, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a positive relationship between percent black and fast food. So the more black residents there were, the more fast food there was. And that was mm -hmm. after you account for the things that people automatically think it probably is like, oh, this is probably about income. Like the fact that these, in, these neighborhoods are lower income right. and fast food is pitched towards low income consumers. So that's probably what's driving it. It wasn't. It was mm -hmm. after you account for the income, after you account for population density and other, other variables, percent black far and away, strongest mm -hmm. predictor. And in fact, if you looked at high income black neighborhoods, right. lower income, they basically had the same exposure. The, the right. income wasn't like anyway. Yeah. So it was it was really about uh, blackness. It wasn't about uh, income. So then you left. I mean, and that's a good point, because I see this in D.C. where we have a, a very nice area in PG County, Bowie, and the home values are 800 and up. But when I go there to visit friends and family, there's no Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, fresh fruits and vegetables stands. A farmer's markets and walking distance. And so people forget what a food desert is, you know, and like, oh, this is great, but you are actually buying a home in a food desert. And then when the businesses do come in, it's a lot of high sodium, fast food chain type things in the area. So as physicians, as we try to teach people who seem to have insurance, like a military family out there to eat better, they have the money. Who's going to drive 30 miles to, to Whole Foods or the nearest Wegmans? Mm -hmm. You have to be really motivated to do that. And people are busy in these homes and, and the kids here and there, and they have to say, okay, well, what's this Panda Express is closed. So just grab that and come on home, honey, mm -hmm. you know? So you're right. It doesn't matter about the income. They're still in our neighborhoods. And then after that paper, you went on to do some more work in this area. Well, right. So that paper, and then in conjunction with, well, we did two other studies, which long story short, we did one where we saw that fast food tended to cluster around schools mm. where where there were more black students and in neighborhoods with more black residents. So and 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 the school the schools, you know, they would cluster more around schools with black residents even after accounting for the fact that you already have more restaurants in black neighborhoods like we just said. So there was that. And then we also did another study where we looked at demand, retail demand, um, not just for fast food but for other retail. Mm -hmm. Because what like what you're saying, black neighborhoods regardless of their income don't get the same kind of access to different retail options of, of any mm -hmm. sort. And actually, in reference to PG County, one of the one of the um, works that I had cited in my forthcoming book, Karen Lacey, a uh, sociologist, had a book called Blue Chip Black, and I forget the subtitle, but she it was an ethnographic study in PG County. And oh. that was one of the things that came up frequently among uh, middle-class Black families she was interviewing and, and um, was that there wasn't retail commensurate with their uh, socioeconomic position. And, and the... Mm -hmm. the but anyway, so we did a retail, we did another retail study where we showed that black residents in New York had to travel farther to get to retail from a whole host of mm -hmm. categories, whether, uh, what do we look at? Bookstores, pharmacies. Okay. We didn't look at supermarkets, but fast food though, was mm -hmm. the one category where they didn't have to travel further. They were, the fast food was in close proximity. And the variable that we were really interested in there was, like I say, retail demand. Is it the fact that these stores are, are located there more because there's more demand for them, which okay. is, again, a common assumption that it yes, must be fast food, but that's why it's there. Mm -hmm. But when we did that study, it was not driven by demand. And so black neighborhoods, so we, in that paper, we, we said that black neighborhoods face retail redlining, which, which to say that they don't have, they're, they're basically retailers seed those markets and that are just, you know, regardless of income, 
do not, you know, cite their stores there from a variety of, mm-hmm. of sectors. So all that together, but especially the, the one paper where we found percent Blackness to be the strongest predictor, that really set me trying to answer, okay, so how did this come to pass? What is, okay. what is really happening? Why? Because fast food, when it first emerged, was very studiously about, you know, all American white families. And so yeah. how did it come to be practically synonymous with Black urban space? So that's- Yeah, you said in the, oh, like White Castle, you said it was one of the restaurants. And I was just like, I remember White Castle. I never never made the connection that it was in a suburban suburban restaurant and now we have it all in our community. So yeah, so you, you went on this, uh, this more exploration about how did this come to be? Yeah, interrogating right. that. So that book is- um is forthcoming uh, in April. That's the White Burgers, Black Cash. Okay. Uh, fast food from Black ex- exclusion to exploitation. Hmm. And so that book is tracing the, the history, basically, of fast food's relationship to Black communities o- over the course of the 20th century, essentially. So from the early 1900s to the 2000s. The book that you had showed before, Burgers and Blackface, was kind of an offshoot mm-hmm. that came about while I was researching White Burgers, Black Cash. Oh, okay. So you've been doing this for a while. I mean, because this is oh. the first book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let, let, I mean, this was a great history lesson. And I told you that I think this should be required reading. And any university that has a book on African-American studies and a book that um, should be read, you know, even in political science, required reading, because what I gained from was questioning some of the uh, imagery, again, for restaurants. I think the one in Natchez, Mississippi was most striking, right? Where you say that the pancake house. Uh, Mammy's covered. Yes, in Natchez, Mississippi, still standing. Yes, still operates. Still operational. And you make this, is it a leap or a fact that the concept that to build a restaurant and have people go in and out of it and it's shaped in the embodiment of a Black woman is uh, racist in the sense of how they, first of all, it's just racist, but the uh, thought or the concept of what it says about Black women in our Black women's bodies in society. I mean, I just had to kind of marinate on that for a minute because there's always a discussion about Black women's bodies from, you know, our face, our color, our hair, and the thought that a restaurant that has been in existence for what now, 30 years? Oh, no, it's more than that. It was about 1940 it opened? Oh, 1940. Okay. Mm But it started off as a white woman's body at first. Is that something that you said and then it changed? No. So actually, let me just, uh, since viewers may not know what, what the book is about, it's, it's looking at explicitly racist restaurants, that, ra- restaurants that use racist imagery mm-hmm. and branding as their, as their entire concept. And so the, the restaurant you were just discussing is Mammy's Cupboard, which is a restaurant where, in Natchez, Mississippi, as you mentioned, which is a, the, the building itself is a big, huge Mammy. Mm-hmm. And and to get into the restaurant, you walk through basically her skirt to get inside. Like the door is right, you know, within mm-hmm. where the skirt area is. Um, the other restaurants that I discuss in the book are the Coon Chicken Inn that was originated on the West Coast. The other ones are Sambo's, which is right. also it was until it was actually right until twenty until twenty twenty they changed the name. It, w- it was open from the fifties to the eighties, and then it closed, and then it reopened. It went bankrupt, and then it, somebody in that family in a later generation reopened it, and then mm-hmm. anyway. And then the last restaurant is uh, Richard's Restaurant and Slave Market, and that right. was yeah. in uh, Berwyn in Chicago, the suburb of Chicago. And so that was the restaurant. That last one, Richard's, um, was the one that led to that little booklet because wow. it was while I was researching White Burgers, Black Cash. I um, I was looking. I was looking through old phone directories, old um, like yellow pages uh-huh. in the restaurant listings, trying to note down, you know, the addresses of different, the, the fast food chains I was actually studying, the McDonald's and Burger Kings and so on, trying to see where were they located in the Chicago okay. area at that time. As I was paging through, I came across this display ad, Richard's Restaurant and <laughs> Slave Market. What is this? Uh-huh. And then I found it a couple other places and then I started researching it. I was disturbed by it, but I kind of set it aside because I was like, okay, I, it's not what I'm doing. <laughs> but then I came across the Coon Chicken Inn. Um, mm-hmm. I was on a fellowship at the Smithsonian, and they have the they have the archives from that the, the collection wow. from that chain. Mm-hmm. So now there was the Coon Chicken Inn, and that restaurant also embodied a, a black person. It was mm-hmm. it was the face of this racial caricature of this coon, mm-hmm. this black man's face, and, mm-hmm. and with this uh, really? caricatured kind of grin on his face. And you walk through his mouth to go into the restaurant. 
Oh, anyway, wow. so now there were two of them. And then that started, and now I said, okay, I, I kind of have to write about this. And then Mammy's Cupboard, I, I, I found that in the uh, Library of Congress archive. Uh, mm. digital collection. And yeah, so that, at that point, I tried to write something about it and, and Burgers and Blackface resulted. So it was really striking that there were so many restaurants that, yeah, and like you said, Mammy's Cupboard is still operating. You can read reviews on Yelp. <laughs> I talk about that in, in my little mini book. People love it. They're very attached to it. People have commented in different forms mm-hmm. that, you know, they wish she was blacker than she used to be. So it wasn't that it was a white woman. It was just that they've now lightened her face. Oh, so okay. it started out really dark. Then it was lighter. And people complain like this is not she doesn't even look like a black mammy anymore. And so they really yes. want that good representation of a, a black enslaved woman. Uh, and you said that you said something interesting. You said that this represents this type of holding on to the slave past and that it's nostalgic for, I guess, the people who want to keep that in memory. Is that something that you conclude or that's something that you found in the documents that say this is just, this is like a, a sweet magnolia when we see this, this figure? Well, I was, I was arguing that, you know, both the, both the restaurant itself, which obviously is a nostalgic look at the antebellum times, where the fact that you would erect a restaurant, call it Mammy's Cupboard, and then mm-hmm. as well, I've not been there, but having seen images and, and, and read um, in different sources, there are also, they, they're also selling, what's the word? Um, mementos. Mementos, right. trinkets, whatever. Yeah. Of other kind, you know, of the mammy and other kinds of racist memorabilia. So it's, it's both the fact that they've made this restaurant and that there is a significant population of Americans who want to engage in that and who enjoy it who celebrate mm-hmm. that, who mm-hmm. um, resist calls, you know, that it's racist mm-hmm. or that. I mean, and you can see that w- was that was true for Mammy's Cupboard. It was true for Sambo's. Mm-hmm. They had a large following of people who enjoy it and who resist any idea that naming a restaurant Sambo's, um, which came from this children's story, Little mm-hmm. Black Sambo, was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And that lasted through generations. I mean, people have torn, torn down Civil War monuments, but we still have restaurants that are reminiscent of the antebellum or slave past of the U.S. I also found it interesting that uh, there are restaurants, places, and towns that you identified on the West Coast that were called sundown towns and that were hostile towards Black people. And we always note, you know, the ones in the South, but to note that Oregon and, and the other areas had this, this history, it was also very um, enlightening in the book. So you have evolved from that work and you found this and then you've been working on your larger piece, which is coming out in May of 23, which I'll definitely read. White Actually, versus- I think it's going to be April. It's, it Yay! Like it's- okay. yeah. so, so, so tell us what you're passionate about in that book and that work. And, you know, I'll let you have the floor to tell us everything about why you feel like this is the time for us to re- even explore this topic. Yeah, I have been, you know, I've been working on this for many years now, so I'm glad to have brought it to completion. But no, I do, I think it's an important issue. It's, um, the, like I say, the book traces fast foods, racial and spatial transformation over the, over the past, yeah, 100 years almost. So, yeah, I won't try to summarize the whole book because, you know, <laughs> buy it and read it. Uh-huh. But, but, the basic, but the basic idea is that fast food started out from its genesis to, to the present in a, in a stance that is anti-Black. It has been so in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changed the tenor of, of how it relates to Black people over time, but it's always been in a way to subordinate uh, Black people and Blackness and to construct Blackness as problematic in some way. So the first generation, what I call first generation fast food, emerged in the early 1900s. The Automat, which you may have seen on, there was a, a recent last year film about it, it was the automatic, it was the, the, the small burger outlets. So White Castle being the first in 1921. And then there were a bunch of knockoffs like White Tower, Little Tavern mm-hmm. in the D.C. and Baltimore area and so on. So all those restaurants in the, were the first generation. They were actually all urban. Mm. They were all centri- c- central city, but all in white space. They had white staff working in them. They served white people. It was an entirely whites only uh, kind mm. of and then the the second generation of fast food, you know, the chains that are remain the biggest today, the Burger King, McDonald's, KFC, those all arose in the suburbs uh, in mm. the mid, early to mid 1950s. So that's the second generation. So it went from urban to suburban. And there it changed when it did that, it changed from a more sort of humble, you know, kind of basic meal for, you know, an urban laborer kind of thing. Like you pick up when you're walking past the restaurant or you get off the streetcar and so on. And the second generation became more about targeting children and families and being about wow. fun and leisure and part of this idyllic, you know, suburban uh, American existence. But throughout 
most of that history you get it's not until really the 1960s where right. black people even begin to participate more more actively in terms of well I, either as customers or um mm -hmm. franchisees so basically you know fast food wasn't really locating in black neighborhoods some of them there were there are a few instances where they they did specifically seek to locate and capitalize and uh you know a market that wasn't really being served by fast food more broadly but for the most part many of the restaurants were in neighborhoods that had been white and then changed after white flight and transitioned mm -hmm. to becoming black. So then the restaurants were in spaces that they hadn't initially intended to be in. And you had white operators mm -hmm. who owned those um, franchises in black neighborhoods. Uh -huh. When the urban rebellions in the 60s hit, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, corporate executives said, well, this is no longer tenable. We can't really have white owned ah. in black, what are now black neighborhoods. And we need to put a black public public face on them. And so that's when they start bringing in black franchisees. And also within the 60s, you had black franchisors who started their own chains, like Brady Keys started All Pro Chicken. He was a football celebrity. There were a lot of celebrities, black celebrities that put, lent their name and time to their own fast food chains. And so, but from the 60s is where you start to see a lot of that, mm -hmm. the racial turnover um, beginning to uh, start to motor along. And then over time, over the 70s and 80s, a number of different factors coalesced to sort of keep that proliferation of fast food going. So there were some other works and you you cited some of your, your, you know, you're not alone in this research. And I think that's important. I think there's, uh, I don't know the sister's name. I can't remember. I want to say it's Maria, but she did the Golden Arches and you're, you're in Chicago. I think hers was the in, in setting in Chicago. Is there synergy between your work and any other authors that you're saying, you know, we are, you know, collectively looking at this and then we have to think about what does that mean to us as a community? What what do we want from your work? What do you want us to do? Yeah. Well, so, right. I think you're thinking of Marsha Chatlin's um, book. Yes. Um, franchise. Yeah, and I forget the full title, but it, it does have the Golden Arches in the subtitle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she has that book. Hers book came out in 2020. And then there was actually a book before hers that came out also in this general area, um, looking at fast food's historical relationship to Black communities. And that was Chin Ju's book. She's also a historian. Her book is called Supersizing Urban America. Mm. And, and hers was published in 2017. So so hers came out first. And that one, um, her book looks at the federal government and its role in producing uh, the food environments that we see today vis-a-vis -vis their um, small business mm -hmm. administration um, loans and other kinds of federal initiatives that you know, fostered the development mm -hmm. of fast food restaurants in black, mm -hmm. neighbor black urban neighborhoods. And then Marsha Chatelain's book is looking specifically at black McDonald's franchisees. Right. Mm -hmm. so she's looking at how McDonald's can be seen as, you know, part, part of this struggle for um, economic and political empowerment. Right. And, and how black franchisees were able to do that. So both of those books start around 1968. Mm -hmm. And like I say, they're looking at sort of two different um, aspects of, mm -hmm. of that broader timeline. And then, yeah, so my bar book starts in the early 1900s and is, mm -hmm. is for example, in comparison to Chatelain's book, which is McDonald's franchisees, my book is looking at all the chains, all the big chains. Mm, that's a lot. KFC, Popeyes, you know, Wendy's, all of them. Oh, Popeyes. Um, <laughs> there's that? a restaurant in Houston called French's Fried Chicken, and uh, it's been there forever. So it's a mom and pop shop that has, uh, you know, when you go get off the air, air, get out the airport and get your bag, you have to go to French's Fried Chicken and third ward right across from TSU. So there we have it, concentrating our communities near the historically black school, definitely the, the anchor of the neighborhood. And it's amazing that, you know, it's it's not, it's, got a, it's definitely not a, as big as uh, McDonald's, you know, and it's a local phenomenon, but it has basically been there and a staple in our communities. So not just Kentucky Fried Chicken. For us no. in Texas, it's French's. <laughs> Absolutely. No. And even like here in Chicago, that sounds like, it sounds like uh, the equivalent of a Chicago chain, Harold's Fried Chicken. Oh, okay. Yes, Fried exactly. Chicken. Harold's. I do oh, know no, Harold's. Right there Chicago. in the South Loop, right? There's, well, there's one there. Mm -hmm. They have they have several. Yeah. So Harold's, it's also, that's, I'm glad you raised that because it's an interesting and important distinction is that even though we, you know, we tend to talk about fast food as the the, the big multinational chains, there are the smaller local mm -hmm. uh, establishments. Some of which, for example, in the case of Harold's, are black owned. They have a different, a, a similar but also different trajectory mm -hmm. compared to the larger chains. And of course, the the, the black entrepreneurs who started those restaurants, mm -hmm. they were concerned with, and, and you see this too with the the fr black franchisors that I mentioned who tried to start these chains. They were 
yeah, they want to make money. It's not, a, it's not a nonprofit. But at the same time, they were also interested in how can we try to provide a source of jobs? How can we, you know, um, bring mm-hmm. in black franchisees? So it's, it was interesting because there was always this tension between, you know, would, would this notion of the fast food restaurant actually realize the goals that some of these black entrepreneurs had and the vision that they had in trying to do something for the benefit of, of their community. Right. Scholarships. Play out, right. You know, over time. So, yeah. So that's an, that's an important distinction also. What do you want us as the black community to get out of it? And then I'll ask you, what would you say would be the value since you come from a clinical medical background? What, what, what are we supposed to get from this? Because what I want to do is encourage health professionals to get into the to the historic history of our society and stop, you know, looking at the community in isolation and start to again pick up what you are so into, and that is, you know, look at these symbols, look at these communities, and think about that and put that around your patient. And then I think maybe we'll, you know, give better care, but we'll also uh, have some calls to actions. Well, I mean, I think so. For example. When I was at an earlier stage of this project, I was I was finishing up an, another study that we had done. It was called the Black Life Study, and I remember that one I part of one part of it was. Work. Oh, did you see that? Okay. that? Very powerful work. Yes, I love it. Mm-hmm. One one part of that was we tested an intervention mm-hmm. um, that I was calling a counter marketing campaign uh, about racism. We used um, outdoor bus shelter advertisements, mm-hmm. and we ran a campaign about the persistence of racism in America. And the idea was, can this campaign sort of, you know, raise consciousness around the ways in which racism persists in different aspects of Black life, whether mm-hmm. wealth, you know, um, media portrayals, other kinds of things. And so we had we, we had the campaign running in one neighborhood in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't have the campaign in Bed-Stuy. And, and the, the, the goal was to look at whether there was a change in health over mm-hmm. time, whether the campaign would benefit health. Mm-hmm. And we did find that there was uh, a redu- reduction of psychological distress. I'm sorry, I, I had I said that backwards. The campaign was running in Bed-Stuy, not in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And we did find a reduction in, in psychological distress. But anyway, but apart from the campaign in the shelter, the bus shelters, mm-hmm. we had a companion website running. Um, it was it was a Tumblr site, which should still be up, but it's not active anymore. But it was, racism still exists. Um, right. Mm-hmm. On and so on the website, we would go into more detail about what each of the ad each of the ads were describing, right? Mm-hmm. So we had, there were six different ads and each one was on a different topic. And so one of them was about fast food and right. it's uh, disproportionate density. On the website, you know, you could see, when we look at the analytics, we could see some of the searches that were bringing people to the site. And one of them was consistently, you know, why are there so many black neighbor- uh, fast food restaurants in black neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. And so people were want- wanting to know the answer to that. And, mm-hmm. and that was what was leading them and, you know, to the website. And I thought, yeah, I want to know the answer to that too. You know, so for me, you know, I hope this book, you know, brings brings some shed some light, you know, on this um, for folks who have been wondering why are there so many fast food restaurants in my neighborhood? You know, what what what's the genesis of this, and what was mm-hmm. the importance of that? So I hope that you know, folks who read the book will have a sense now where this begins and 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 how this story has played out. And I think in terms of what you're saying for uh, clinical work, mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's this, it's a similar thing where both clinicians and and mm-hmm. and the patients you know there are a lot of assumptions that sort of operate again perhaps out of awareness they're but they're so in, um, ingrained mm-hmm. into our culture that it's just mm-hmm. people just operate on these assumptions and don't realize it but for example again the, the idea that people's dietary practices are based purely on demand mm-hmm. and don't realize that actually first of all so that's one thing that has come out in as I researched this book there was never a time mm-hmm look at this whole arc of this story, there was never a time when Black people were clamoring for fast food. There just was not. If Ah. anything, you saw protests against this continued entree of fast food into Black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. When it was very early in its history, you know, those first generation restaurants, at that time, Black people were busy. They Either they had their own little restaurants that they were, or they were, you know, they were trying to engage in healthful eating. They weren't concerned about fast food. The only time you see that there's interest in fast food is as the franchise, as the economic opportunity. Nowhere in there do you see people talking about, oh, this food is so wonderful and we want we want to consume this food all day long, you see. So mm-hmm. I think that attention to really separating what the environmental context is from what people's, and then and, the, and therefore the constraints on what people's 
options are and choices are is, is something that comes out of that. That's something that um, you said, because as we saw too in the 60s, the rise of communities like the Muslim community and getting back to, you know, making healthy foods. And, you know, we had a large population, Muslim community in Chicago, you know, the, the bean pie, the the, the, the um, turkey chili or navy bean chili. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad wrote the book, Eat to Live. That was an important part in awakening in terms of our communities, getting away from junk food. I guess the question I have is, do you think that historically one of the marketing tools was to start to give uh, franchises to esteemed Black men, primarily in the community, and then that in turn made it a community acceptance to go to these fast foods? Was that a marketing, uh, you know, like the carrot and the stick? I don't know if I could, I, I have a, so the, so the Black franchisers like um, Brady Keys, you know, he had a lot of establishments. Mm-hmm. Um, which apparently were, you know, at least th- they were fairly well received, I guess. I mean, they weren't, I don't have really granular data on how people uh, responded to the, you know, the particular chains that were led by him versus mm-hmm. uh, or, or other black franchisers compared to the, um, the, the big multinationals and so on. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily that. I mean, they thought the, the, the partnerships that those franchisers made so, for example, he partnered with uh, Burger King um, and with KFC at different points. But those chains definitely saw having a black celebrity. Uh, Jackie Robinson was also involved with a chain, Seahost. The chains definitely saw benefit to having prominent black faces as the figurehead uh, for mm-hmm. some of these enterprises. I don't know if that alone drove. Really, so- yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, what do you think drove all the proliferation of fast foods in our communities? I think that's the the question. Or do we need to read the book? <laughs> I mean, but, but that's what but that's what I was saying is that there it's not just one thing. It's all of these things. It's the, it's the federal government in funding those opportunities mm-hmm. through the small business administration okay. and other mm-hmm. kinds of federal initiatives. It was the fact that so, so the suburbs were becoming saturated and more difficult to open restaurants. So that mm-hmm. then the, the chain started looking back to the center city where they didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it was to try to mollify a population that they they saw in in uprising when we when we saw the rebellions in the in the sixties and thinking well if we give them jobs or if we give them these these outlets as a way uh, of economic you know opportunity okay. yeah. were, and then changing d- dietary mores in the eighties I mean there were always lots of things happening at different at each point along that timeline gotcha. there were different things that were sort of pushing that along. And as well, you know, there were there were pull factors, you know, so Operation Push, for example, signing those what they were calling racial covenants with with chains to bring again, they were interested in trying to bring more economic opportunity to the community. They but at what cost? But at what cost? Right. So we advocated, you know, as this uh, as a way to get people in our communities to have jobs. But we did think about the flip side at what cost that it would ultimately have on our community. Over time, I guess that would be hard to to understand. But this is why I keep saying we have to have interdisciplinary conversations when we're making some policies and thinking about the health of our, our of our community. Because I think that your perspective as a historian, a professor, as a psychologist, as a, I mean, get to it. You said interdisciplinary. I'm about to name them all: historian, okay. well, uh, psychologist, right? Professor of Africana Studies. You know, this is, and then if you were at a roundtable with physicians, you know, we could brainstorm about the call to action. And so, like when I am reading this information and, and starting to be more conscious, particularly like you know, as my friends out in Bowie County, start to advocate, start to look at, well, why can't you all get more grocery stores? that have fresh fruits and vegetables, or how do we get uh, farmers markets are out here in these communities? Certainly space, but I think that your your work will bring about an awareness so that it will spur action to make people realize they are in food deserts, these um, no more fast foods in these communities. Because I know that some white communities say they put a limit on it, that you can talk about your urban planning or your community planning and put a limit on the uh, amount of fast foods in your community. Is that true? Yeah, there are plenty of uh, communities, uh, white communities that have done that. And that it, it, so towards the last section of the book um, that, that I talk about that, because in Los Angeles, they instituted a ban in South LA trying to mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. restrict the entree of, you know, in a hypersaturated uh, neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that was received, you know, it wasn't received in the way that when white communities 
do that on the basis of many different concerns, whether it be even just aesthetics. Right, right. It, it doesn't have that same kind of pushback that when the ban in, in LA was uh, was put forth. But also, I want to um, say that in terms in terms of thinking about food deserts and and um, you know different kinds of food retail sources. Some other works that I think are critical to read there, one would be Ashante Reese's book, uh, Black Food Geographies, mm-hmm. where she really looks at, first of all, she pushes back on the notion of a food desert uh, in terms of that terminology and mm-hmm. its focus on lack and sort of this lack that um, gets attributed to Black people more, more broadly. Like there's a lack of the stores, there's a lack of fruits and vegetables, like, and that lack gets sort of you know, internalized into how Black people operate generally as people. Um, and the choices that they're making, one, in fact, that her work shows that people are providing for themselves in a number of ways, apart from what is available. And food deserts are not, you know, they're not a natural, t- to say desert as if they're sort oh. of like a natural occurrence. Karen Washington, I believe her last name is, um, who talks about it's really, it should be food apartheid we're talking about. Oh, so. okay. I think, okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. Um, right. I'll start but, to and then, I'm sorry. I said, I'll start to use that language. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. No. And so it's it's an important um, way to think about that. And then another book that um, just came out last, well, this is 20, 2022 is about to finish. It was this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Psyche Williams-Forson's book, uh, Eating While Black, where okay. she's looking at food policing and shaming in African-American communities and how Black people are shamed for the kinds of choices that they make, regardless of what they are. Again, you know, sort of assumptions about well, we just need to tell people how to eat or we just need to provide a certain yeah. kind of resource. But a lot it's not of dealing with, there are many reasons why people eat things apart from just what's nearby or what they know. There's also, people have, you know, meaningful attachments to foods from their culture, from their from their families, from their, you mm-hmm. know, histories and so on. And they use food to express themselves in different kinds of ways. So so her book is really looking at the, the kinds of ways that Black people are are. are constantly surveilled for their for their food choices. So that's another You know, that's um that's interesting because we do see that maybe on the good intention, you know, a lot of like let's say for the American Heart Association, for instance, that they're this is what you need to eat. And if you're not eating this, then you are bad. That'd be something to explore as well. I think that a food policing. Okay. I uh any final thoughts on where your career is going? Where should we follow you in terms of the next year? Um please give me some of the um you know goals to to look for. And so that I know to uh, encourage people to continue to look at your work and, and know who you are and what you're up to. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, right now I'm actually, uh, so I'm here in Chicago, um, not at Rutgers. I'm, I'm because I'm on a long-term, I'm a long-term fellow at the Newberry Library uh, here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on my next book project. Um, mm-hmm. So this one is looking at corner liquor stores in yes. West Neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I had done some work uh, when I was in New York uh, on outdoor advertising for alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of an outgrowth of that. But yeah, liquor stores are different than fast food. This this book is not about a transformation as in how did liquor stores go from none to plentiful? They've always been there in, in great number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is really instead looking at what has been the import of that? What what how how should we see the liquor store? What is the liquor store? What mm-hmm. role has it played in black life? And and what consequences has it had beyond just um whether people are drinking more? But mm-hmm. what role does it play in in this racialized social system that we live in in the United States. So you are going to look at liquor stores in our communities. Are they growing in size and scope? I did see a prelude to that. I don't think so, actually. It's interesting. I think there are fewer now than there used to be, mm-hmm. for sure. If they don't go to the corner liquor store, what do you think is shifting to in terms of purchasing liquor liquor in the Black community? That, I don't know. I don't know. That's interesting. I just think the number, the, I just think the absolute number of liquor stores is fewer than it mm-hmm. has been. So, for example, LA is going to be one of the key uh, cities in the book. And you know, LA, for example, in the '90s, before '92, uh, when things exploded um, post uh, Rodney King, you know, and a lot of the liquor stores were destroyed, and then they set up parameters around which liquor stores could they come back or not, and that kind of thing. And so, there are fewer there than there used to be. There's probably still too many. I, I haven't. I don't know yet what the current landscape looks like. But whatever the number is, it's less than the egregious mm-hmm. number it used to be in the 80s and uh, in the early mm-hmm. 90s. And I think that's probably true in other places. But yeah, I'm early in the work, so. But those places continue to be, no matter what number they are in our communities, what I'm noticing in, in the trend is when we pull up certain high crime areas, that there is a liquor store somewhere nearby. And the conversation about alcoholism in our communities is one that uh, I don't think that we're uh, revisiting enough. I think that we also see 
you know, more of it in our entertainment space, how it's being advertised across all social economics as the thing to do. You know, that's going to be important work to, to look at and explore as well. And I'm looking forward to reading that. I think there's, um, as we continue to break down these kind of environmental challenges, more of us need to become aware. And then I, again, we want to make sure that we're being, we're acting, we're taking your your hard research and and using it to spur some civil changes within our community, because that's the only way that we're going to address health disparities. You know, kind of think of the big picture and, you know, these lectures and, you know, these think tanks, because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of health disparity conversations, but I can't say it enough on how we are you know, not including works such as yours and other historians and, and Africanos. <laughs> you really want to be a historian. You are. You, oh, is that you told me? You're not, you don't like you, I've done historical projects. Historical. You're not a historian, a pure historian. You, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, tra- I'm a psychologist by training. Um, my research is interdisciplinary now. So yeah, this project was historical in nature. It was, tra- you know, trying to answer a historical story, but I, I'm not a historian. You know, you reject that. <laughs> but I, you know, you have given me so much historical perspective. So I, I'm. Uh, that is, you know, you're an interdisciplinary in, in terms of your clinical psychology background, your public health background, yes, and Africana studies. Would that be fair to say, Professor? I mean, I think I've, I've been in different academic settings. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've worked, like I say, yeah, I worked in the School of Public Health. I now teach in Africana studies. So... But yeah, but my my training is psychology. I am I am kind of far from home um, from what I originally trained to do, um, which just sort of evolved over time. Like I say, as a function of how my interests developed and the kinds of things that mm-hmm. really set me off on this path when I was doing clinical work. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to claim mm-hmm. th- those disciplines. I'm not trained in that. In that. In, so in what what uh, so when people think about you and the legacy you want to to leave, you know, I want I want you to make that clear for me and the audience so that they know where to what discipline you are. But I don't know if trying to pin down a discipline is really what I'm concerned about. I mean, I hope the work can stand on its own regardless of what discipline I mm-hmm. um, originally trained in or or where I might happen to be, you know, what kind of academic department I might be affiliated with or something. Mm-hmm. So my my emphasis is really on trying to answer questions that I hope will have some some lasting impact and that, that can be of benefit and of use to supporting Black life in this country. Will you go back to Rutgers? Eventually, well, Rutgers, right? So I'm on. I'm just on fellowship leave for this year. Okay. So yeah. next academic year, I would be back at Rutgers. Yeah, because I said I had a hard time finding. Like, where is she? Where is she? When I found your first <laughs> work, and I had to keep just want to make sure that I, we know where to find you. We know where you're located. And so again, I'm passionate about your work, and I think um, again, I'll continue to use it in my conversation about health disparities and trying to achieve health equity. I think that this is very important work to cite. And I continue to do that and email you with any questions that I have that are non-historical in nature. <laughs> so I thank you so much, Dr. Quate. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy and I look forward to reading the book. We'll put it on the website and we will uh, make sure we link it back to any of your other works. So I'm a huge supporter and I'm going to do that. Okay. Thank you. It's very kind. You're welcome. What the doctor say?